prayed about what we, uh, what the Lord wanted to talk about, and I felt like He wanted to uh, go back over the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, also known as the Trinity. And so um, last week, I I brought up the question um, about the relationship between the Father and the Son, and it was this: Did did God turn His back on the Son? On the cross, did God hide his face from him or turn his back on the sun? And uh, if you go to the cross, you'll see Jesus, you'll, you'll hear him crying out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is really where this theology has come from, that, that God is, is too holy to look upon Christ who has become sin for us in that moment. Uh, the only problem with that theology is about a dozen verses, which I would like to just recap real quick. Um, John 14, 11, this is Jesus saying, I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. John 6, 46, I'm from the Father and with the Father. John 16, 32, he says to the disciples, this is a, this is a big one, to the disciples, he says, you will all leave me alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. <sighs> Doesn't that just feel good? 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. This is John 8.28-29, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing up on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. But where did this idea come from that God deserted or turned his back or could not even look at his son on the cross? Uh, this is a very pervasive theology, and um, there's this verse in Habakkuk 1.13 that a lot of people use and it says, this is Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, wherever you want to put the emphasis. <laughs> he says, your eyes, this is, this is a complicated process here. <laughs> Open the water, keep talking. Hold on. It says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. Well, I guess I am proven wrong, and this whole sermon is trash. Except, if you just keep reading the verse, it says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. Why then do you? This is, this is Habakkuk pouring out a complaint saying, the world is full of all this evil, and, uh, and you're tolerating it. Like why are you why are, like why aren't you doing something? This is a complaint. Prophets, poets, and worship leaders are known for pouring out complaints. <laughs> I'm a worship leader, so I can rightly say that. <laughs> it's a situation where a, a, a man or a woman of God is looking on, uh, you know, a condition of the earth or a condition of their own heart, and. And they pour out a complaint, and in that place, they're, they're just, just spewing out their complaint before the Lord. But should we make a doctrine about the nature of God while a 
prophet from the Old Testament is pouring out his complaint. If you made doctrine from every time I complained, the world would be screwed up. I promise you. This is him pouring out his complaint, and he even goes back around at the end of the verse and says, why then do you? Why then are you looking at sin? Um, So this is not a doctrinal dissertation. It's a bunch of whys. Why? And it's just like Adam's misunderstanding of God's heart when he hid. What would have happened? Have you ever thought about this? Instead of, uh, you know, they realize they're naked, like filled with shame, and then believed that God was going to do something very terrible to them, and so they hid from fear of God. What if they just walked up to God, buck naked, and said, we screwed up? Of course, that, I mean, that story was never written, but that gets to be our story because the heart of God has been revealed through Christ. Well, this, um, this idea that God turned his back on Jesus um, is important <clears throat> for us to sort out because it brings to mind the question, how much do I have to sin before God turns his back on me? Would he ever? And this is a very uh, pervasive theology. I hate to do this, but I'm going to out a song that we've all sung. It's a song that I've encountered the Holy Spirit through in worship, except for on this line where it says, One final breath he gave as heaven looked away. It's in our worship songs. And it's incorrect. I think worship songs, when they're written, should pass through the hands of a theologian before they're sung. (laughs) Right, Marvin? (laughs) So is God unable to look on sin? Well, let's just look at the life of Jesus, because he's God, right? He's 100% God. Who did Jesus get real close to? Sinners. Whose lives did he look upon? Sinners. He said, You're the Pharisees' huge complaint. This guy is a friend of sinners and tax collectors. Why is he eating with prostitutes? And why, why in the world, if, if he knew what kind of woman was touching him right now, oh man, he wouldn't let her get close to him. So, I mean, that should put the issue to rest right there. That is God looking. In the, on our sin, living in the midst of our depravity, he actually got inside of our prison to free us. But on the cross, Jesus was crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is a direct quote from Psalm 22, and it's David crying out, and he's actually embodying the cry of humanity and an accusation that humanity has against God, saying, why have you forsaken me? Actually believing God had forsaken him because his mind was darkened by the sinful nature and he couldn't actually pull that veil off to see that God was always for him. And if you continue to read in Psalm 22, it proves itself again. 
Once you get to verse 24, it says, He has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. So he's close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. The father never turns his back on anyone. Uh, The cross was the ultimate expression of his love. And on the cross, his blood was changing us. It was not changing God. He was reconciling us to God. He was bringing us up and seating us in heavenly places. See, he came down, took on the nature of man so that we could go up, take on the nature of God. He was reconciling us to God, not God to us. He never changes. His love for us is constant. So um, another problem with believing that, you know, God turned his back on Jesus is this idea that uh, Jesus is holding back the vengeful fist of God from destroying us. And to that, I would have to ask, is God's kingdom divided? Is God working against God? Is the son really, like, he, is he trying to convince the mean dad? No, trust me, I mean, they're, they're good. They're really great once you get to know them. I've been down there. I know it. I've, I've smelled them. I've lived. The hummus is great. <laughs> but this is, this is an important thing to get worked out because um, there are many Christians that believe that God will send a storm to destroy a rebellious city, but we will be the ones rushing in to save those who are in danger. Are we more merciful from, than God? Did you catch what I was saying there? Let's say, let, let me put it this way. If I was in a boat during a flash flood that God sent to destroy a city, and I see a dude drowning in the waters, and he's, he's a mean-looking dude. He's got like a face tattoo with the teardrops symbolizing how many dudes he's popped a cap in. But he's drowning in the water, and I'm in a boat. And, and God, but God sent the storm to destroy the wicked. I am going to grab him and pull him out of the water. Am I then working against the will of God? Of course not. But if I believed that God was trying to rid the world of the filth of that city, then I would let him drown because I wouldn't want to rebel against God's righteous judgment. But believers always show up to save and to help. So are we working against God? Or do we just have this subtle, misconstrued concept of the heart of the Father? I want to pose this. Humanity was drowning in a flood that we created. Jesus came to save us and reveal the heart of God that has always been for us and not against us. He's saving us from our mess. It's okay if you disagree with me. 
I can't force you to be right. <laughs> I'm just kidding. If seriously, you can totally disagree with me as long as this like gets under your skin and forces you to go search it out and then you can come to me and tell me why I'm wrong from scripture. <laughs> I've got a coffee date coming up. <laughs> uh, I really appreciate every opinion. I really do. Um, let me talk about that for a second. Paul talks to Timothy, who is his spiritual son. And in uh, 1 Timothy 4, I believe it's 16, he says, Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Yeah. Timothy was a kid. He was in charge of, like, first century churches. And he was given to fear. He's, he's actually timid. Paul had to remind him to be brave several times. And so he says, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for all believers in speech and life and love and faith. And <clears throat> I really do appreciate anyone who challenges my doctrine in a good-hearted theological way. This goes all the way back to the fall and the curse. See, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, and they finally had their powwow, and God was explaining what the situation was going to be like from here on out, it is traditionally known as the curse. God was explaining the curse had to be brought God was explaining the curse that man had brought on the world. But as he was t saying these things, the new conditions of the world, he's saying, you're going to have to work your tail off to get a crop of corn to sprout out of the hardened earth. The earth is going to produce thorns. The, the, the pain in childbirth is going to be greatly increased. And as he is speaking out every condition, every new, every, the, the new situation of earth, he is fully knowing that he himself is going to be taking on every bit of the weight of that curse to undo it for us in 2,000 years. He wasn't saying, you have mucked this up. Here are the consequences. Go try to fix it. No, he was saying, my children have been separated from me now in their minds and their idea of me is completely darkened by this sinful nature. The only way that I'm going to overcome their new accusation toward me is to hang on a cross and let them throw all their accusation at me while I say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They've been completely duped and bamboozled by demonic forces. The only way that we could be freed of our accusation against God was to pour out our wrath on him on that cross and let him say, I forgive you. I love you. I love you. I don't hold this against you. And you know, the people who put him on the cross, the very people who conspired against him, the murderous, even the guys behind the scenes that were like really trying to get, get this guy on the cross, those very people, when they stood before God, they may have had a list of sins a mile long, but murdering Jesus wasn't on it. Because they were pardoned by his prayer. 
Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. See, the early church never believed that Jesus' death was to save us from God, but to save us from sin. He stepped into the depths of my depravity, into my prison, into my shame, my anxiety, my desperation, my rebellion, my twistedness, my corruption, my fear, and he took it into the grave and he left it there and rebirthed me without any of it. That was all recap from last week. So... (laughs) (laughs) that's the fastest I could recap that and do it justice Um, let me let me introduce just a a new a new concept that we're gonna we're gonna land on in a much more solid way next week Um, the greatest revelation of God has been given to us his name's Jesus. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so we talk about all these mysteries like God's ways are higher than our ways. It appears to me that God's ways have been completely exposed, revealed to us in the life of Jesus. He wasn't, he, he had dealt with, uh, you know, a few thousand years of being hidden from man, he really wanted to pull back the veil and say, this is my heart. And when Jesus was, you know, when he encountered people who were were sick or in pain or heartbroken and Jesus restored him, he said, I'm doing exactly what I see my father doing. See, he, he put on a man suit so that he could walk among us because we'd be blinded by his light if he didn't have that going on. (laughs) he's 100% man 100% God and he will be so forever other religions don't believe that God can be approached but we actually get invited over for dinner this is not the Old Testament his ways are not concealed because they've been unveiled by Jesus The reason um, I can have compassion for Muslims is because they don't believe that they will have fellowship with God in paradise. They, they're actually going to sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice and, and live in a way that they believe is holy to God. And then when they get to paradise, they don't think that actually they'll be any closer to God because he's still completely unapproachable then. That's a miserable life. But we've been invited into communion with the Trinity. I said this last week kind of tongue-in-cheek. I'm going to say it again. And uh, if it comes off as immature, it's because it is, and I'm young. (laughs) I kept trying to ask Jesus into my heart when he already asked me into his. And I think that's a better invitation to be welcomed in to fellowship with God.
to become one with Jesus and have the Father relate to me as he relates to the Lord. To step into the finished works of Christ, to have his righteousness become my reality and his white robes become my new wardrobe. That sounds like a lot better deal. The key word here is invited. We know that it's love because he doesn't pressure or coerce or manipulate us and his love can be rejected. Forced intimacy is not intimacy at all. It is an assault and a robbery of something sacred. He gives us ample opportunity to accept his offer And there's a powerful draw to his love. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw the hearts of men. So people who end up in eternal judgment are not those who sinned more. They are those who rejected his invitation to enter into the fellowship of his love. In fact... Since there are no amount of righteous deeds that get me into paradise, there can be no amount of unrighteous deeds that would keep me out. But do we really believe that? Was there a certain amount of victories in my life that made me a son of God? This is where you go like this. Did you, guys, did you guys have enough wins in the area of righteous deeds that you were elected to become children of the living God? So if no amount of victories made you a child of God, no amount of failures can make it undone. I promise you right now, I am not giving you license to sin. I'm giving you the very love that would cause you to live out the righteousness inside of you. When you realize that salvation is a free gift, you will gladly become a disciple, which will cost you everything. But we have to get that part down first. So, the Holy Spirit is awesome. That is the end of my sermon. (laughs) I tried to get to the Holy Ghost. I really did. I tried to get the Holy Ghost, but it is lunchtime. (laughs) Don't worry, he's not grieved. Ephesians 4 has nothing to do with that. (laughs) Oh, man. He's good. I just love the Holy Ghost. He is not an insecure, scaredy dove that is like this skittish little like spirit being that gets super offended like real easily. He's like, "Mm, there's sin in that room. I'm not coming. (laughs) Your sin did not make the Holy Spirit rush away. Your sin made the Holy Spirit rush in. If you look at the mess that we made of the world, like the, the fallenness of creation that was entrusted into our hands, 
And then you watch Jesus plunge himself into it instead of run away and and judge from a distance. Then you will know that he will continue to plunge into your life. But we've been conjuring up a presence that never leaves and begging in prayer for what we've already been given. We have been conjuring up a presence that never leaves and begging in prayer for what we've already been given. Now, before you think that I'm talking down on charismatics, let me flip to the other side. Uh, the, the super heady theologians of the super reformed camp say things, you know, they, they're actually analytically trying to decipher something that was ultimately just meant to be enjoyed. Drink it down and get drunk. Don't try to make a doctrine. <laughs> Man, I feel the Lord. (laughs) We cannot get more Holy Spirit by scrubbing ourselves clean enough to pass the white glove inspection. And the Holy Spirit is not steadily increasing in our service as we sing louder. (laughs) He's not coming or going based on our performance. Ephesians 4 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you're sealed for the day of redemption. This verse itself... Okay, so people use that verse to say, Don't grieve the Holy Spirit, okay? He's hard to get back. I mean, every, everyone in the church at the same time has got to get on their knees, repent real loud if you screwed up. And then the Holy Spirit might come back to your church. But this verse itself says you've been sealed for the day of redemption. Like people argue that that verse means the Holy Spirit will leave when that verse says the Holy Spirit won't leave. It's really weird to me. He's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. What grieves the Holy Spirit is that when we choose harm, it is, or sorry, when we choose sin, it is self-harm. What parent wants to see their child choose sin? In fact, just before the service, God gave me a uh, case in point demonstration with my son completely disobeying me. <laughs> he did not want to go back into that room, and he wanted to eat all the snacks from the, <laughs> the machine out there. And I said, son, make a good choice because the consequences will reach into the rest of this day. (laughs) Becca was out there. She she heard me say it. Becca Nava, she was in the cafe going, oh man, this is going down. He made a poor choice. And I said, you can either walk back there or I'm going to carry you. And I ended up having to carry him while he kicked and screamed and tried to hit me in the face because he's a five-year-old little man who wanted to exert his will above mine. <laughs> and, um, and it made me really sorrowful uh, because uh, the rest of the day, the things that he loves 
are going to be limited, such as he's not going to get milk in his sippy cup. He won't get to pick a show off of his iPad. Like things that we we, we take away to help him learn how to make good decisions on his own. See, I could control him for a while until he is bigger than me. And then he gets to spend the next however many years in rebellion trying to figure out how to make good choices. Or I could show him love, which does not manipulate. Allow him to make choices and allow him to see how his bad choices affect our friendship. That we'll actually, show, we'll actually show our children the emotion that their bad choices cause us because um, that, that's what they have to know. They have to know that uh, our friendship with God, it, it grieves his heart. Their, that their friendship with me, my heart is grieved because they are making bad choices that it's going to limit their joy. And I want to see my kids happy. You know how much more our Father in Heaven wants to see us happy? He wants us to know that the sin that we choose grieves His heart. Not because He is an intergalactic rule keeper, game warden, but because it is limiting our joy. It is limiting our ability to live in the freedoms and the pleasures that He created for us on this planet. 